Right, so let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Psalm 34. And this, this psalm is one that uh, addresses a subject that uh, we hear about sometimes, and I had often wondered about it, and so I sat down and studied this psalm a little bit a couple of years ago. Uh, but we hear uh, this idea, we see it in the New Testament even. We read verses like, Uh, Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Uh, Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so we're we're told that we are to rejoice in the Lord, uh, always, in all circumstances, uh, whether we're healthy or ill, uh, whether we have plenty or whether we are in want of things, uh, whether we have large attendance at church or a small attendance, uh, whether the times are good or bad, whatever the circumstances are, we are to rejoice in the Lord, to praise the Lord. And, and we're told that this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus, that we would rejoice and praise the Lord in all circumstances. And so uh, we read this, and I think we often struggle to do that when, when times are difficult and we're facing uh, you know, strife or difficulty in our life, disappointment. Uh, we kind of like the nation of Israel in the wilderness. We are prone to grumbling, uh, to complaining, uh, and we tend to look at our circumstances with you know, the eyes of the flesh, and instead of looking with eyes of faith to see what the Lord is doing. We're looking just at uh, what we can see with our physical eyes. We're looking at the things that have gone wrong. Our thoughts and our minds tend to focus on ourselves and we lose sight of the goodness of God. And and, and so we fail to praise him in those moments. And so I I was wondering, well, how do we uh, learn to praise God uh, always, uh, to rejoice in him always? And so I thought we would look at Psalm 34 uh, and, and learn from David uh, how to rejoice in the Lord always. So let's, let's read Psalm 34 in its entirety, and then we're going to focus primarily on the first three verses. But it says in the beginning that this is a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So if you'll remember back in the life of David, he's fleeing from Saul, who's hunting him down, wants to kill him, and so he flees to the Philistines. Uh, to uh, King Abimelech in Gath, and they recognize him. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. This is David. This is the warrior of Israel who has killed so many Philistines. Uh, And so they begin to think, maybe we should lock him up or kill him. And so David uh, pretends to go insane uh, in order to protect his own life. And so here he is. He's on the run from Saul, from his own, you know, fellow Israelite in the kingdom that he is anointed to be king of one day. Now he's fled to the enemies, the Philistines, and now they're uh, thinking about killing him. And so he has to pretend to be insane in order to protect his life. This is not a a great situation. This is not a situation that we would normally think, oh, let's praise the Lord in this moment. And yet that's what David does. And so listen to what he says in this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Now this is an amazing psalm to think that David wrote this uh, as he is reflecting upon this moment in his life when he is having to pretend to have gone insane in order to stay alive because he is in the hands of his enemies. But this psalm is one that we're probably familiar with, at least with parts of it. Uh, verse 7 is quite popular. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You've probably heard that line used in multiple uh, you know, praise songs and, and worship songs. Verse 8 is well known. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Uh, verses uh, 18 and 19 are both popular verses. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as are of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In verse 20, uh, we recognize to be a reference to Christ on the cross, right? His, uh, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Uh, that, that verse is actually quoted in the New Testament in reference to Christ. Uh, but this is a psalm that David wrote at this moment in his life when he's on the run from King Saul uh, and he's fleeing uh, from his enemies, finds himself in the hands of the Philistines uh, and has to pretend uh, to be insane. And so he eventually leaves Gath and he flees and lives in a cave uh, and he writes this psalm praising the Lord for saving him. He's living in a cave, uh, not like he's in a palace or something of that nature. Uh, but this is a psalm of deliverance and of praise uh, from this bad situation. And, and the psalm as a whole is very encouraging to those who are suffering. Uh, there's a theme that runs throughout the psalm of the Lord's deliverance. Uh, he delivers us from fear, it says in verse 4. He delivers us from trouble in verses 6 and 17, from lack and, and from our need in verses 9 and 10. He delivers us from evil in verse 16, from broken hearts in verse 18. He delivers us from affliction in verse 19, and even from death in verse 22. 
Well, who does God deliver in this psalm? He delivers the humble, according to verse 2, the poor in verse 6, those who fear him in verses 7 and 9, those who trust in him in verses 8 and 22, those who seek him in verse 10, the brokenhearted, it says in verse 18, but above all, it is the righteous in verses 15, 17, 19, and 21. And so what I want to do with this psalm is focus primarily on these first three verses uh, as David uh, is recounting this episode in his life and seeking to bless the Lord at all times and to praise him continually. And so I want to look at this idea of continual praise. And I think there are five uh, um, questions that we could ask in regard to this, and they are the standard questions that we're familiar with, who, what, when, how, and why. Uh, and so the first question is, who? Uh, who uh, is praising the Lord? Um, and it points us in two, two directions, really, this who question. Who is the one who is praising the Lord, and who is this Lord that is being praised? Um, notice the use of personal pronouns throughout these first three verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Uh, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So uh, we see I, uh, my, my, me, uh, and there is an us there that we'll get to in a minute. But think about for a moment and let this sink in that the, the personal nature of our relationship to God. I mean, do, how often do we reflect on the fact that the God who we've been learning about uh, for these last few weeks in CLA, the creator who created all things, the universe uh, from nothing, he creates everything that exists. He creates the solar system, the galaxy, the universe beyond the reach of our most powerful telescopes not just the physical either. He creates the invisible as well, the spiritual realm. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him were all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He created everything, whether we can see it or not, from down to the, the smallest part of an atom that we can separate out to the ends of the universe and the spiritual realm as well. He created it all, and it is his active will that holds it all together. And we are in personal relationship with him. We get to praise him. We get to continually praise this God. We get to worship him. He has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. Think about that. This amazing, almighty God who created everything has revealed himself to sinners such as us. He, he has shown himself to us in the word and has sent his son uh, to be the perfect image of God for us in the flesh. And we have this great privilege of reading this word that he has given us, uh, of meditating upon it, and then of praising him uh, for what he has done. And that's pretty amazing to think that we can hold in our hands the words of the Almighty God, and that he has given us words such as this in Psalm 34 to help us know 
how to praise and worship him. But David doesn't leave it there, right? It's not just a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, but there is a plural aspect of it too, as we saw in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 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 God's people, uh, you and I, have the great privilege of praising God, joining our voices together in song, our hearts, uh, in prayer, our minds, in worship and meditation, we praise God as a body of believers, as a church family. And we're not the only congregation doing that this morning. There are congregations all across Lapeer County, across the state of Michigan, throughout the United States and the rest of the world that are praising the Lord. Uh, we're just one little pinprick of light on a map uh, of the world. Uh, if you could zoom out from our perspective, and, and maybe you've seen one of those pictures that's taken from space uh, of the earth at nighttime, you know, when you can see all the little points of light. If you can imagine that map uh, and those points of light representing gathered churches praising the Lord, lights in the midst of a dark world. Um, and if you could see it from God's perspective, it would be even more amazing because he sees it throughout space and time, right? He sees the church spread out through all time praising him. We're not the first generation of Christians uh, on this planet. We're not the first generation to praise the Lord and to, to worship him. Uh, and we're not the first ones to have his word. Uh, it has been uh, given to his people down throughout the ages. And so when we praise our God and worship him together as a body, we're not just joining our voices together with one another. We're joining our voices together with his church throughout time and space uh, in order to worship him. Our numbers may at times seem small when we look around the room on Sunday morning, but we are standing shoulder to shoulder together with a great multitude of saints uh, now and in the past and in the future who join us in worshiping uh, this God. So whom is it that we are worshiping, that we are praising? Well, David directs his praise uh, in each of these three verses to the Lord. He says in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. And he says in verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. And in verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Uh, and along with that, he also mentions um, in verse 1, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And in verse 3, let us exalt his name together. And the point is, is that we Christians offer praise to a personal God. He's not some impersonal force. He's not, uh, you know, the God of the deists who just created everything and set the top to spinning and then turned his back on it and walked away. No, this is a, a personal God who is involved uh, in our lives. He is involved in his creation. This is not a, a vague spirituality that is so popular in our culture today, people that claim that they're spiritual but not religious. No, we have a relationship with a personal God. Uh, we're not worshiping some nebulous idea of love or goodness. We are worshiping a knowable, uh, personal, specific God whose name is the Lord. Uh, we cannot exalt uh, his name together 
if we don't know his name and if what we're trying to worship is some undefined nebulous idea. We're exalting his name together, as David says in verse 3, because he has a name. He, he is a personal God. His name is the Lord. And in your English Bibles, that word Lord is probably in all capital letters. It is in mine. And that's a reference there. It's the standard way of translating the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And so worship is being directed to this specific God who revealed himself uh, to the family of Abraham and to Moses and uh, to uh, all of creation in Christ. And so he is alone worthy of worship. And we don't typically use the name Yahweh uh, when we are worshiping. We, we talk about the Lord or we talk about our Father in heaven or about Jesus or about the Holy Spirit. Um, but this is the God that we are worshiping. I don't think it's necessarily wrong to use the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh in reference to him, but Jesus doesn't specifically tell us to do that. Uh, he tells us to, to address him as Father, uh, to pray to him as our Father in heaven. We don't see the apostles in the New Testament insisting on using uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, but we recognize that the God that we are worshiping in the New Testament is consistent with the God that was worshiped in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the God that we are worshiping. Paul regularly speaks of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as he does in Colossians 1.3. And if we look at verse 5 in our text, it says, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. Now, David speaks of looking to him. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, we see that it teaches us that we see God when we look at Christ. That, that, that's where we see God. That's where he has revealed himself the most fully to us. Jesus said uh, in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we look to Christ, and in him we see the glory of the Creator, the glory of the God of the Scriptures. We look to Christ, we worship him, uh, and I would refer you uh, for further insight on that subject uh, to Charles Spurgeon's sermon on verse 5 here in this psalm. It's entitled, Looking Unto Jesus. Uh, it's a wonderful sermon. You can find it online and read it if you go to Spurgeon.org. Uh, all of his sermons are there, and you can just look up Psalm 34, 5 and find that, uh, but it is a masterful uh, sermon on the glory of Christ. Um, but we Christians, both individually and corporately, give praise to God our Father uh, in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we worship God, the God uh, of the Scriptures revealed to us uh, in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. So this is who is worshiping, Christians, believers, those who have trusted in Christ, and we are worshiping the Creator, the God of all things. Uh, and so we offer praises to Him. So what do those praises look like? Well, if we look at the text, uh, it, it's amazing the things that David says. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Play, pr bless, praise, boast, 
be glad, magnify, and exalt. Uh, when your joy is found in knowing and being known by God, uh, that joy is expressed in worship, and David uses these terms to describe it. What does it mean for us to bless the Lord? I mean, it seems kind of strange to us, doesn't it? We, we read about the Lord blessing Abraham or a father blessing his son, but how can we bless the Lord? It seems like a strange uh, thing for David to say. Uh, we bless our meals when we pray over them before we eat them. Uh, we bless someone who has just sneezed when we say, God bless you. Um, we can think about the Catholic practice, right, of blessing uh, someone who is dying. Uh, in the South, where my wife is from, you bless people's hearts and all their vital organs. Um, but that's not what David has in mind here. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And in this context, it means that he is expressing thanks or adoration. But not just thanks. It's a thanks while acknowledging uh, the exalted status of the one he is giving thanks to, of the one who gave him whatever it is he is expressing this gratitude for. Uh, consider Deuteronomy 8 verse 10. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Now that's interesting. We usually pray before our meals. Deuteronomy says pray after your meal. When you're full, after you've enjoyed the food, then give thanks for it. Bless the Lord for his bounty, for the land that he gave you that grew this food and for what you just ate. And so I'm not, I'm not starting to trying to start a campaign that we switch and pray at the end of our meals, although that might be fun to do. Um, but you can see that obviously to bless the Lord in this context includes a, a component of thanksgiving, that we're expressing our thankfulness uh, and acknowledgement that God is the giver of all good things, that he gave the land, he caused uh, this variety of crops that we could grow on, on the land. Uh, he caused the rain to fall and the sun to shine. The plants grow because of him, not because of anything that we do. Uh, it's very generous of God to treat us in this way. He didn't have to make food fun, right? It could have just been bland meal that we ate three times a day, but he gave us this incredible menu of delicious foods from homemade apple cider and, to, and donuts to cheesecake to, you know, beef, all these wonderful things that we grow and, and that we are able to eat and that taste amazing. What kind of prayer should we offer to the Lord in thankfulness for that? Or consider, let's see, Psalm 104 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. And, and the psalm goes on. But here's a song of blessing to the Lord uh, that just 
spills over into like uncontrolled adoration. Uh, the psalmist just can't stop himself from just going on and on there in Psalm 104 about the glory of God in creation, his mighty works that he has done. Uh, he sees God's glory as everlasting. And at the end of the psalm, he says this in verse 34, my meditation on him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. So there, there's a dwelling of the mind on God. Uh, where we're just meditating on the sheer beauty and goodness that he is and the gifts that he has given us. And there's a gladness and a rejoicing that comes from that. And we could go on all day reading passages throughout the scripture where someone blesses the Lord in, in gladness and gratitude. David did this uh, after Abigail came to him. Uh, he blessed the Lord for stopping him from seeking vengeance against Nabal there in 1 Samuel 25. Another great example is found uh, near the end of David's life in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our, our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. The, our Lord O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you, a house for your holy name, is from your hand, and all is your own. David is acknowledging here that, that everything belongs to God, and anything that we offer back to him, we're just giving him back what already belongs to him. And so David is just caught up in, in this praise and thanksgiving uh, for God, uh, honoring him, expressing his deep, heartfelt love for this God who gives all good things. So when David says here in Psalm 34 that he will bless the Lord, he's verbally expressing thanksgiving, gratitude, adoration, affection, even awe for who God is. And then the rest of these terms are various aspects of what it means to bless the Lord. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Well, if we praise someone, we're expressing approval, admiration, gratitude. Right? We can sing someone's praises by telling others uh, about their character, their accomplishments uh, with approval and admiration for what they have done. We often equate praise with uh, singing in the church. Right? As we gather as God's people and we sing together, we're, we're singing praise to the Lord. In fact, that's what the word psalm means. It means praises. Uh, and so we're singing praises to God uh, for his character, for his mighty deeds in our lives. In verse 2, David says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Uh, this means to, to rave about something, right? If you boast about something, um, 
It's something that's so great and you're so excited to tell others about it that, that you boast about it. Right? And we face a, a problem uh, in our own souls often because the thing that we are often the most inclined to boast about is ourselves rather than God. Uh, the reason for this self-aggrandizement, for this boasting in ourselves, is our pride. Right? This is the original sin, the sin that Satan succumbed to, the sin that Adam and Eve really succumbed to. They wanted to be like God. And so we have a tendency uh, to boast about ourselves. We want other people to think that we're as great as we think we are, or as the, at least as great as we wish that we were. But here David is boasting in the Lord. And look what he says in the second half of the verse. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Now, the humble are not glad when they hear somebody boasting in themselves. Uh, that kind of boasting is full of pride. The humble would not be glad in a prideful boasting. It's also full of untruth, right? Boasting in yourself is to lift yourself up for other people to admire, uh, to say, hey, I am to be admired above everything else. Look at me. That's dishonoring to God, and it gives no joy to others. The humble are glad when we boast in the Lord, when we lift him up as supremely admirable. When we boast in him, others can take joy in that. Those who are truly humble, who have trusted in the Lord rather than themselves, uh, can join with us and be glad when they see someone boasting in the Lord. When we speak with excitement about the greatness of God, the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone, it confirms in the hearts of the humble their trust in the same God. Our very salvation is set up so that we may boast in God alone. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? We are to boast in the grace of God alone, not in our own works. We can't boast about ourselves because apart from Christ, we have nothing to boast about. Any good that we do, any good that we might have to boast about is Christ in us. And so our boast should be in the Lord, not in ourselves. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 6.14 that he will boast in the cross of Christ alone. Remember the situation in which David wrote this psalm. He's just been pretending to be insane in order to escape death. Now he's living in a cave again on the run from King Saul. And so what David is saying here is, the best idea I had was to act like a madman. And God saved me from certain death. There's nothing here for David to boast about in himself. If he's saved, it's because of God, not because of him pretending to be a madman. It's really difficult to boast about yourself when you've got spittle in your beard and have just been scratching on the gates of the city with a crown like a madman. Uh, the idea is about as crazy as it probably looked, right? David attributes his escape to the grace of God. He boasts in the Lord, not in himself. In verse 3, he then says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Well, what does it mean to magnify something? It means to make it appear larger than it normally would. And there are two ways and reasons that you would magnify something. The first is because it is so small that you need to magnify it in order to see it. The second is that it is at such a great distance away from you 
that you need to magnify it in order to get a sense of its actual size. The second sense is the way that we magnify God. It's not that God is small and we need to make him bigger than he is. It is that he is transcendent. He's so vast and magnificent, but sometimes he feels like he's a great distance from us. He's not. He's close to us. He's close He's close to those who know him. Verse 18 here in the, in the text tells us that he is near to the brokenhearted. The, the whole sense of this psalm is that God is near to those who are humble, who are seeking his deliverance. But when we are pressed by the concerns of life, the stress of work and family, our vision tends to get clouded. We can't see God near us. We tend not to see him. We tend to lose that sight of faith and instead just look with our earthly eyes. And so David invites others to join him in making God clear to one another. Like a telescope brings the vast expanse of distant stars into view for one who looks through it. So the praise of God's people brings God's magnificence into view for those whose spiritual sight has been weakened throughout the week by the cares of this life. In verse 3, he, the last phrase of verse 3 says, And let us exalt his name together. To exalt the name of the Lord is to raise it up to its proper place or status. Imagine having the name of Christ in giant block letters and holding them in your hands and just heaving them up with all your strength to say, Here it is. This is the name that should command your attention, your affection, and your love. This is how David describes worship in these three verses. It's something that engages our minds, our affections, our emotions, our strength, our whole being. It's a vigorous, substantial, and full of exuberant joy. But when are we to worship God? This is how we began with uh, Philippians telling us that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Well, David says this in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, I don't think that David is vowing here that he will never speak of anything else, but will just walk around for the rest of his life saying, praise God, bless the Lord. Anytime somebody tries to engage him in conversation about affairs of state, all King David says is, bless the Lord. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he is saying is something quite different from that. As we think, well, how does this work in real life that that I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. As I thought about that, I thought about C.S. Lewis's use of that phrase, real life, in screw tape letters. And so I got my copy off the shelf, and in letter one of the screw tape letters, if you've never read, read them, I encourage you to do so, uh, but there's an older demon named Screwtape uh, and his younger nephew demon, Wormwood, and so Screwtape is instructing Wormwood uh, in how to go about his duties as a demon, to tempt people to try and keep this particular man who has been assigned to him uh, from becoming a Christian. And so as he's mentoring Wormwood, he tells him in the first letter uh, not to let the human that he is responsible for engage in any kind of analytical thought, uh, debate, or argument uh, about the truthfulness of ideas. Right? Don't let him think about whether an idea is true or not. Don't let him discuss it with others. He says this, he says, even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, 
you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life and don't let him ask what he means by that. So he's, he's saying that if we focus our attention on the immediate sense experiences of our daily lives and think of that as real life, that we'll be distracted by that from weightier issues. Uh, Lewis states in the, the preface to the Screwtape Letters that Screwtape is wrong about some things. And I think that perhaps Screwtape is actually wrong here. Uh, either that or Lewis himself is, I'm not sure which. But when we focus on the immediate and we lose sight of God, then we are lost in that stream of real life, as Screwtape says. But on the other hand, our goal is not to ignore that stream of immediate sense experiences. We, we do live in the world. We do experience these things. Had God's intention been for us to worship him purely in spirit, he would take us out of the world at the moment of our salvation so that we didn't have to deal with that stream of immediate sense experiences. But he doesn't do that. He leaves us in the world so that we can worship him in the midst of that stream of real life and show the world the glories of God. So you, you can see that all of life is lived in the body, in this life. Scriptures tell us that our bodies are temples. A temple uh, is a place of worship. So all of life, even the stream of the ordinary, is to be filled with the worship of our Creator. You're carrying your temple around with you, worshiping God in this stream of real life. And Sunday mornings are wonderful. They're the best time of the week. It's the Lord's day and it's a blessing uh, that he has given it to us. It should be a delight, scripture says. We come together, we worship together as God's people. It's special. But one purpose of these scheduled weekly times of worship is that they prepare us and equip us for spontaneous worship throughout the rest of the week. Matthew Henry, commenting on this verse, says that the psalmist had resolved, quote, to lay hold of all opportunities for it, that is, for worship, and to renew his praises upon every fresh occurrence that furnished him with matter. So as you go through the stream of real life, wearing your temple around, your place of worship, you were to look for every fresh occurrence that furnishes you with matter for worshiping God. And remember that he works all things together for good to those who love him. Uh, even when Joseph's brothers stripped him of his robe, sold him into slavery in Egypt, God meant it for good. We're going to read about that this morning uh, in our sermon. Uh, Joseph, in that moment, when his brothers threw him in a pit and were negotiating a sale price to the slave traders who would take him to Egypt. In, in that moment, I don't know if Joseph was able to go, hey, there's matter here for me to praise the Lord. But later in his life, he was able to look back at that moment, at that circumstance that was so cruel and unjust and terrifying, I'm sure, to a young 17-year-old and see that there was matter here for praising and worshiping God. David, when King Saul seeks to kill him, and he has to pretend to be a madman to escape his enemies, 
and goes on to, to flee to a cave, uses that situation as matter for worshiping God and writes this psalm. Repeatedly and often, scheduled and spontaneous, all of life is lived in worship to our God. It's, it's our eternal task. Bring heaven to earth and worship in the circumstances of real life. But how are we to do that? How are we to praise God continually? Well, there are three ways that David uh, points out to us in this psalm that we are to do this. In verse 1, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David was resolved to worship with his mouth, with his words. Um, How can we remain silent in the face of God's great salvation, of his rescuing of us? his love, his generosity, all of who he is given to us in Christ. Our joy should overflow in words and songs of praise. Too often we use our mouth to say things that do not honor and please God. We don't read verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Our mouths tend to be full of evil and deceit. And if they are, they will not be full of the worship of God. If our mouth is full of his praise, there'll be no room for evil and deceit, for prideful boasting and self, for hurtful words towards others. If we resolve with David to keep our mouth full of God's praise, don't just think in your mind a prayer of thanks. Say it out loud. Speak it. Use your words you'll find that it becomes a little more real to you. You know that I I was reading just something the other night, um, reading a book about uh, the ancient creeds and confessions of the church. And the author mentioned that uh, in ancient times, all reading was done aloud, even when it was someone by themselves in private reading a book. We we often sit in bed and, and we read silently in our own minds. But he said they didn't used to do that. They read out loud, uh, even to themselves. They read aloud. And there's something about that that engages more of your person and more of your senses. You're you're reading it, but you're also hearing it in that moment. And so it's the same thing with our worship and our praise. When we speak it out loud, we're actively speaking it, and we're also hearing it. So we should lay hold of opportunities to speak God's praise privately on our own, but also in the presence of others. It'll strengthen our faith. It will encourage them in theirs. David says in verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. David was resolved to worship God with his soul. Calvin calls this the seat of the affections. Simply put, your soul is the essence of who you are as a person. It's your inner man. Uh, It's your mind, your will, your emotions, all wrapped up together. It's something the scripture sometimes calls the heart. Uh, It's not the physical organ beating in your chest, but it's the core of who you are as a person. It's your immaterial soul. This is the part of us that is made in the image of God, as we've studied uh, in the confession What is it that sets us apart from the animals and makes us be made in the image of God? It's that the confession says we are created with rational and immortal souls. It's that inner person that is made in the image of God. And what David is saying here is that his worship 
is heartfelt. It's not just uh, an outward rite of religious practice that he goes through, but it's actually coming from his heart. It's real. It's deeply embedded in the core of his being. It's not just words. The words of his mouth would be empty and vain if they weren't coming from his heart, from his soul. Without this, your words are really hypocrisy. And God is not pleased with that. We see throughout the scripture that God says he's not pleased with empty and vain words. He doesn't want us to, to speak words of praise but be far from him with our hearts. If you tell people that God is great and greatly to be praised, but you don't feel that down to your toes, people will sense the hypocrisy in your words, the emptiness of them. So let your, set your affections on Christ and look to him. Get a taste, as David says in verse 8, of the goodness of the Lord. Let his mercy and his grace overwhelm you. And don't worry so much about getting the words right, but rather about getting the heart right and speaking from the heart. In verse 3, David then says, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David desired to worship with others, to worship together with other believers. And this is healthy for many reasons, and I'll just point out two of them. If we have a true sense of who God is, as we've discussed, and a true sense of who we are, our soul will rightly feel its own ability, own inability, its own inadequacy to rightly glorify God. And therefore, we will crave the companionship of others. We'll want to hear multiple voices lifted together, worshiping God, praising Him, reinforcing one another. As we come together, we speak the great truths of God's goodness and greatness. It encourages and builds up all of us in our faith. It strengthens us. It excites our affections, both individually and as a body of believers, it increases our joy. You know, there's the old story that's told about uh, the man who stopped coming to church, wasn't coming regularly, and so the pastor goes to visit him at his house, and there's a fire going in the fireplace. The pastor sits down, doesn't say a word, takes the poker to the fire and isolates one little piece of coal off by itself, and it was burning brightly and glowing hot when he isolated it. But when he gets it off by itself, it starts to cool off. It goes from orange to black. And then he nudges it back over into the fire, and it begins to glow hot again. Never says a word, and the guy sitting there with him goes, All right, Pastor, I get your point. We can worship God on our own, but if that is all we ever do, and we never worship him together with the church, we begin to lose our joy. We begin to lose the heat of our affection for God. Secondly, worshiping with others is a powerful apologetic for the gospel. It's our life together lived in worship of God that best communicates and gives weight to the truth that we claim has happened in our lives via the gospel. When a person is reconciled to God through Christ, they, they become part of his body, the church, the people of God. Worshiping together in the stream of real life speaks powerfully to the world that we believe what we say. When we worship together, it can take two forms. Gathering with the saints to worship, such as we're doing this morning. 
and a special time set aside for that purpose on the Lord's Day. It increases our joy. It shows uh, that we really truly believe how magnificent this God is that we are gathered to worship. But there's also the joy found in worshiping with others together in a cave as David was forced to do at times with his men. We meet in our homes. We share meals together. We spend time talking about our favorite books. We pray together. We visit each other in the hospital. We push into each other's lives to build community shaped by the gospel. We worship as David has described in these verses continually and at all times in the stream of real life, yet together, not alone. And this is where we're changed, where the gospel is brought to bear on our fears, in verse 4, our troubles, in verse 6, our, our hunger, in verse 10, our desires, in verse 12, our tongues, in verse 13, our affections, in verse 19. When we speak the goodness of God to each other in times of despair, in times of lack, when we keep watch over our speech together, when we encourage and give hope to one another, in times of sorrow, when we share with one another the movement of God in our daily lives, then we're able to bless the Lord at all times together. Continual praise is not some magical, mystical, super spiritual level that you achieve when you become some sort of super Christian. That's not, that's not what it is. It's simply praising God with our mouths and meaning it and doing it together, both on Sunday morning but throughout the course of the week in our real lives as well. But then we ask the question, why? We'll look down at verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. It's our joy to know and to worship God in community with his body in the stream of real life, continuous praise for who he is and what he has done to bless the Lord and exalt his name together because he has redeemed us. He has saved us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are four things drawn from this psalm that I want to leave you with that I think can inspire continual praise. Uh, And in good Baptist preacher fashion, they all begin with the letter G. So, uh, in fact, I saw a cartoon this week that with a, a... preacher sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor said you seem to have some weird obsession with alliteration (laughs) Um, but we often do this but it helps aid our memory right so here they are first God is great we see that throughout this psalm God is great and because he is great we don't have to try and be in control of every little detail God is in control We don't have to have it all together before we come to him. David wrote this psalm while living in a cave on the run from King Saul, having acted like a madman before the Philistines. And he came to God and worshiped because he knew God was in control. God had delivered him. We can come to God and worship when our life is spinning out of control, when we don't have it all together. We don't have to have it all together because God is great and he is in control. Secondly, God is glorious, and because he is glorious, we don't have to fear others. David could have feared Saul, he could have feared the Philistines and Gath, 
But when he sought the Lord, God delivered him from all his fears, he says in verse 4. We often live our lives in fear, right? We fear uh, our boss. We fear the opinions of others around us. We, we fear people on the street or at the grocery store. Uh, we don't keep the glory of God before our face. When we're not looking to him, other people tend to loom large in our minds and we begin to fear what they'll think or what they might do to us or say about us. It's not how we're supposed to live. And the amazing thing is we don't have to conquer this fear before coming to God in worship. In fact, coming to God in worship, especially together with others in the body of Christ, helps us to rightly see that God is glorious. Worship of the body together magnifies the glory of God. It becomes clearer to the eyes of our faith. Our vision is directed to him, and we see how glorious and how great our God is. And he delivers us from all our fears. And so we lose the fear of men when we gain the fear of the Lord. Third, God is good. He is the giver of all good things. And so we don't have to look elsewhere for good gifts. David tells us in verse 8 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste for yourself, he says, and see that God is good. We tend to look elsewhere for satisfaction and fulfillment. We, we look to our career, to our profession, or uh, we look to our spouse or whatever relationship we're in, uh, to our status or standing in whatever particular social circle we're a part of. Wherever it is that you look for fulfillment, it, they will eventually let you down. You will not find fulfillment in these things. And when you do, you'll feel empty and you'll suffer that, that want and that hunger that David speaks of in verse 10. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. We, we don't have to feel complete we don't have to feel full before we come to God and worship. He wants us to come to him empty, to be filled with his goodness. When we gather to worship as a body, brokenhearted, crushed, emotionally empty, and we begin to speak the truth of God's goodness to each other, we find that God is good. He is our joy. We find fulfillment in knowing him and knowing that he knows us. And then lastly, God is gracious. And because he is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves to others. We don't have to live a perfect life before we come to God and worship. We sometimes think that God won't hear us or that our worship might be rejected because of our failure to live holy lives. God doesn't relate to us in this way. The basis of God's goodness to us is not our behavior, our earning it, our meriting his goodness because of our behavior. It's not the holiness of our hearts, but rather the basis of God's goodness and graciousness to us is found in the new covenant. He forgives our sins because of Jesus' blood shed on our behalf. We don't get what we deserve from God. What we deserve is hell, and instead we get God himself. God is gracious and we are reminded of this when we come together in worship with other sinful people. And we look around the room and we go, none of us deserve the grace of God. We realize that all of our sins have been forgiven by a gracious Savior. 
theirs and mine. We're reminded that God is gracious when we observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism shows us a visual picture of the sinner being washed of all their sins and raised to new life. The old man buried and left in the grave as we are brought out of the waters to live new life in Christ Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a visual picture of the sacrifice of Christ, the propitiation for our sins, turning away the wrath of God, satisfying it completely. The bread and the juice picture these things for us. And we're reminded that God is gracious to his people. And this is why David can say in this psalm and end it in this way, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What a glorious truth that is. Our lives are redeemed in Christ. Our failures made right by his life and his death. That's why we celebrate. That's why we worship. It's our joy to know and to worship God in community with his people in the stream of real life, continually praising him for who he is and what he has done. So as we go up this morning to the rest of this worship service, let us bless the Lord and exalt his name together. Let's close in a word of prayer.